to put this bluntly, people are going to die who don't have to die because the transition is not going smoothly. And that was true in 1932-33. The transition of power from one U.S. president to the next typically goes off without a hitch. But this transition has been anything but typical. From a president who denies the reality of his electoral loss to a mob incited by that president to storm the Capitol, it's been a dark and dangerous time for American democracy. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. Can history inform what the nation is enduring right now? How have other contentious transitions gone down? And what could this mean for the U.S. going forward? Eric Roshway is a distinguished professor of history at UC Davis, a leading scholar of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. His expertise includes U.S. policy, social and economic history from the Civil War through the Second World War, and he's the author of several books, including most recently Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and The First Clash Over the New Deal. Welcome to The Backdrop. Thank you. So we're recording our conversation the day after that pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol. Some call it an insurrection, others a coup attempt or domestic terrorism. As a historian, what are you thinking right now? Well, there's nothing quite like this um, in American history. And of course, the extent to which that's true depends on what you mean by like and like this. Uh, But the um, spectacle of a defeated president inciting a mob to successfully, at least momentarily, disrupt the electoral process is uh, something we haven't had before. It's true we've had violence uh, in American elections and that it was, of course, endemic in the Jim Crow South, for example. And it's equally true that presidents of the United States have deployed the army, for example, to put down protesters, as for example, when Herbert Hoover did in uh, 1932 against the bonus march. But this is uh, a president stirring up mob violence to attack the legislature. That's, um, you know, certainly out of the textbook definition of proto-fascism, if not quite fascism. You know, I have some colleagues in the academy who don't think it's actually fascism until you have Hugo Boss design uniforms. But the um, the uh, seeds are certainly there. Now, how do you think we will look back on January 6th, 2021? I mean, we've had traumatic events even in our, 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 our recent history, December 7th for the Pearl Harbor attacks, September 11th for the terrorist attacks. I mean, people are, are, are beginning to think in, in those terms for what happened. Yes. Well, and as with those events, a lot depends on what happens afterward. As you know, Franklin Roosevelt used uh, the Pearl Harbor uh, attack to swiftly move the United States onto a war footing and to uh, wage a two-front war in both Europe and the Pacific, and really to move beyond the um, debate over isolation or intervention that had been um, a characteristic of American politics down to that point. Uh, And you also know that in uh, 2001, the administration of George W. Bush used that event to move the nation onto a very different kind of war footing, one that in many respects is still in place. And uh, the global war on terror in many respects still shapes uh, what the United States government is capable of. Um, And so much depends on what happens after this. What will the Biden administration do? What do you think should happen after this? In my view, one of the principal lessons of history, and it's not just for events that are violent and traumatic like this one, but is that if you uh, 
as the phrase goes, move forward, not back, then you encourage such things to happen again. I'll give you an example or two. Um, you may remember that, of course, in uh, 1974, Richard Nixon resigned and was pardoned by his successor, uh, Gerald Ford. What that showed is that the president is above the law. And subsequent presidents have carried on as if that were true, and especially notably in the situation where you had Ronald Reagan and his successor, George Herbert Walker Bush, carrying on an international organized crime effort that we generally summarize with the term Iran-Contra. And George H.W. Bush used his pardon power to pardon people who might have implicated him, including former Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger. And that showed that the president's um, subordinates might well be above the law if they were to assist him in carrying out criminal activities. And I think we're living with the results of that in the current administration, where we've seen the president pardon people who have assisted him in uh, criminal efforts. So moving forward, not back seems to be a bad idea. If you look at that pattern, you could look at something that's more in my actual wheelhouse of expertise, again, going back to the bonus march in 1932, Mm -hmm. This was a situation where uh, some 15,000, 17,000 or so veterans of the Great War had come from all over the country to Washington, D.C. to petition Congress to pay them their lump sum payment that they were due as veterans of that war a bit early because it was the midst of the Great Depression. It was about 25% or so unemployment, and they were you know, petitioning for relief. And Congress turned them down, but they remained in the Capitol to protest, and eventually Herbert Hoover, then the president, decided to call out the army under the command of Douglas MacArthur to drive them off. And MacArthur did that expeditiously and with considerable force, including the use of tanks and tear gas and cavalry under the command of George Patton, among others. Um, and it suddenly seemed to have dawned on Herbert Hoover that that was, as we would say nowadays, not a good look. And uh, Hoover ordered MacArthur to stop. And MacArthur ignored the order. And Hoover ordered MacArthur to stop again. And MacArthur ignored that order as well. And then afterward, MacArthur paid no penalty for directly disobeying an order from the commander-in-chief of the Army of the United States. So it shouldn't surprise us that MacArthur went on to a subsequent career of continuing to disobey presidential orders um, in smaller ways uh, when he was in the Pacific Theater in World War II and in, in large and notable ways when he was under the command of Harry Truman in 1950, 1951. And if you let somebody get away with lawless behavior, they're quite likely to repeat it. That's a lesson that I think we should have learned. I'm not sure we have. Well, looking at today and moving forward, are there legal or constitutional safeguards that could be put into place to ensure people are held accountable, you know, prevent things like people in elected office inciting violence? Well, sure. I mean, one of the um, uh, probably longest standing features of the United States Constitution is, of course, federalism. And uh, what, one of the things that we saw yesterday is that the failure of the District of Columbia to be embraced by the federal structure of the United States is a big problem if the president of the United States is himself the problem. Uh, that is to say, Washington, D.C. was unable to call out uh, the National Guard in its own defense because it isn't a state. So uh, if D.C. had statehood and had the powers of a state, that would certainly contribute to its ability to defend itself under circumstances like that and to prevent it from being at the mercy of a commander in chief who didn't place the safety of citizens of the district first on his list of priorities. Um, 
you know, beyond that, there are other things that, uh, you know, could, could, could well be reexamined. In fact, there are think tanks that have given over many, many, many more person hours than I have to thinking of the things that need to be done to prevent the kinds of abuses that the president has committed over the last four years from happening again. And they range from various forms of um, ethics measures that could be taken and, you know, requirements that the president disclose, uh, financial and overseas connections and so forth and so on. But in, in the immediate situation, you know, the kind of thing um, that might well have prevented uh, yesterday's occurrences is simply giving Washington, D.C. control over its own defense. Right. And, you know, these, these things aren't supposed to be happening in the U.S. We're supposed to be a bastion of democracy and stability. And yet here we are, you know, dealing with another unprecedented thing. Um, is there anything out of our history that can help us process this or, or put it into context? Well, I think that what the Trump years have done for us, among other things, is force us to reckon with, or certainly at least invite us to reckon with, some of the worst aspects of American history. Presidents before Donald Trump have done, you know, grotesque and awful things, even presidents who we rate as good presidents, you know, like Franklin Roosevelt, who arbitrarily imprisoned Japanese Americans based simply on their relationship to, uh, you know, Japanese ancestry, and for no other reason. But, you know, we usually sort of say, well, that's something that runs counter to American ideals, as if you'll forgive me, you just did. Um, when we know that, in fact, you know, the fact that Abraham Lincoln appealed to the better angels of our nation, nature, we know, therefore, that there must be much worse. And uh, certainly, you know, sort of what we saw yesterday, while in its specifics was unprecedented, it certainly has deep roots in American history. An awful lot of what we saw yesterday resulted from the rage of white people at potentially losing their privileged place in American society. Um, you know, you saw people carrying the flag, the battle flag of the Confederacy in the capital of the United States. That's really quite extraordinary. That's a flag of a group of people who committed treason against uh, the United States of America in order to defend the institution of enslaving black people. And that's what people were waving around inside the Capitol Rotunda yesterday. Um, as I say, that's, they are, they're pointing out the historical roots of what they've done. I don't really have to do it for you. Uh, mm -hmm. There were uh, you know, other people who were wearing Nazi uh, symbols. That's a little remoter from American history. Um, but it still bears consideration that uh, folks who would seek to stop the electoral process and try to overturn it in favor of President Trump would uh, just choose to invoke the people who for you know, decades have been the kind of the go-to enemies uh, for defining the opposite of the United States of America. Let's talk about our current presidential transition. You've noted that there are parallels between this one and the Hoover to Roosevelt transition. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, in both instances, the country was facing crises, you know, mm -hmm. during the Depression. It was the Great Depression, unemployment, poverty. Today we have the pandemic, unemployment, um, social and racial injustice. So both of these transitions were not smooth. So what, what can the, the Hoover to FDR transition tell us, or what lessons can we learn from that as we are navigating through this current transition? All right. So prior to the presidentially incited insurrection of January 6th, 
there were a lot of things that you could say about the uh, Trump to Biden transition that you could also have said about the Hoover to Roosevelt transition of 1932-1933, right? In, in both cases, you had a president who was incapable of believing that the people would turn against him. And, uh, and yet, to many uh, detached observers, it was obvious that uh, those incumbent presidents would lose precisely because of their mismanagement of the crises that beset the country in those two occasions. In our own time, it's the uh, COVID pandemic and the attendant other crises that are related to that. In 1932, of course, it was the Great Depression. And the Great Depression, by that point, had lasted almost the entirety of Herbert Hoover's term in office. And it had only gotten worse pretty much year on year on year. When you look at, for example, the unemployment rate, it simply just goes up and up and up over the four years that he was in office. And it had reached something close to 25% by the time of the election. Uh, the prices that were paid for farm goods had meanwhile gone down and down and down. And so you had this paradox where farmers found it uh, unprofitable to harvest their crops, even at the same time as their fellow countrymen were starving. And you had you know, perfectly good livestock and crops going to waste in the fields while Americans were going hungry in the cities, which bespoke a breaking you know, of the American economy. Right? That the system of distributing, distributing rather, the plenty that Americans could produce had broken down. And that was where Herbert Hoover really failed. He couldn't believe Right, that the American system of commerce could fail, and therefore it must not have failed, and therefore it would turn itself around any minute. He continued to believe that throughout the course of his presidency, and that helps to explain his inaction, or his near-total inaction, let's say. And uh, that also helps to explain why he was turfed out of office. You know, the uh, American people looked at a president who had failed to resolve the crises of the Depression, and who on the campaign trail in 1932 promised them more of the same uh, and chose his opponent instead for, I think, what are fairly evident reasons. So in that campaign, people were looking at the crisis and saying, well, we'd rather not have the guy who has essentially done nothing and let the crisis get worse. And that's, that's not a million miles off of what people appear to have thought in 2020. You know, let's have the guy who would do something uh, in the teeth of this crisis rather than the guy who doesn't want to do anything in the teeth of the crisis. So during the Hoover to FDR transition, did Hoover push back and not cooperate with the incoming administration, as has happened with this transition, or, or was it smoother? Well, the major difference is that Herbert Hoover never denied that he'd lost the election. Right. I mean, he acknowledged having lost. Now, he believed he shouldn't have lost. He was bitter at losing. He thought the American people were ungrateful, all of that kind of thing. But he never you know, said, well, I didn't lose. He didn't contest the results uh, you know, in terms of the numbers because it was obvious that he lost, as indeed it is now obvious that President Trump uh, lost the 2020 election. Uh, but Hoover you know, admitted you know, brute reality in that um, respect. You have to remember this was... Uh, uh, in the old days, the inauguration of the new president was on March 4th. Um, so this was a much longer period of transition, 32 to 33. It was the last time it was that long. Outgoing Hoover had between November and March to still be president at a time when the Congress was meeting. The Congress 
was amenable to New Deal-type legislation, Roosevelt having won the election, the Democrats having won Congress, and Hoover put up substantial opposition to that. In fact, threatened to veto anything like that that would pass the Congress. So the answer is yes, Hoover substantially opposed the transition, even if he didn't procedurally oppose the transition. He was determined that the New Deal would have to wait you know, uh, come what may, until Roosevelt actually took office. It was obviously open to him to be cooperative or at least to not resist, you know, the change of governing regimes. But he chose instead to dig his feet in and even to try to pressure Roosevelt or to limit his options once he took office. It seems to me that Hoover harbored a lot of animus uh, against Roosevelt and his policies. Um, but he never went as far as trying to disrupt the actual constitutional democratic process. Yeah, that's right. In fact, he, you know, he did his job as far as that's concerned. He um, didn't stick any kind of wrench in the works in terms of the electoral vote going ahead, for example, to use to use something that may be uh, on our minds at the moment. He even went out of his way to go ahead and cooperate by you know, calling a special meeting of the Senate to happen on inauguration day, you know, after he went out so that the Senate could go ahead and approve Roosevelt's cabinet. Now, again, that was partly, you know, Hoover sort of thought of that as being in his own self-interest. He thought, well, the sooner Roosevelt's people come in, you know, the sooner I can no longer be blamed for what's going on. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he was he was cooperative in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of doing that. Now, some people at the time, suggested he could have been even more cooperative in hastening this sort of procedural transition. That is to say, he could have uh, appointed Franklin Roosevelt to be his secretary of state, and then he and his vice president could have resigned. And under the laws that then prevailed, that would have made Roosevelt president early. Uh, he, hmm. he rejected that idea, uh, but then he wasn't bound to do that. That was simply a suggestion. But within right. his legal and constitutional duty, he did, he did his job. Okay. but uh, So after Roosevelt does become president... Yeah. Hoover does work kind of against him and his policies. Like he doesn't just kind of fade away like a lot of presidents tend to do. And uh, this is something that a lot of political observers, at least before the Capitol was stormed, um, you know, a lot of people suspected that Donald Trump would probably continue to tweet and insert himself in politics once he's out of office, going against that tradition of former presidents staying out of the public eye to give the new president a chance to govern. Do you think that's still a possibility at this point, or might his involvement with this attack on the U.S. Capitol damage his chances of remaining politically viable? Um, just to tease out the the comparison a bit by pointing out what Hoover actually did, if if you don't mind, sure. that might be helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, Hoover had been independently wealthy before going into politics uh, in the 1910s, and he used some of his money to establish uh, what was first called the Hoover War Library and is now still called the Hoover Institution, which is a conservative think tank uh, on the Stanford campus in Palo Alto, California, and indeed has supplied some of the major figures of the Trump administration, including Scott Atlas, who's the head of the Trump administration's COVID response or lack of response, depending on how you'd like to characterize it. Um, But the Hoover Institution Hoover thought was going to be sort of his headquarters for his post-presidency, and he would, you know, have his office there where he would employ people to write uh, histories of his administration that would vindicate him, and then also scholarship that would show the failings that he believed would inevitably come of the Roosevelt administration. 
And to some extent, of course, that is what the Hoover Institution went on to do and can, in fact continues to do. Uh, it, it sort of carried on with that vision of vindicating Hoover's view of what the economy ought to be like. And Hoover himself uh, remained a public figure pretty much for the rest of his life. He lived a very long life. He didn't die until 1964, uh, which meant that he outlived Franklin Roosevelt considerably, Roosevelt having died in 1945. And indeed, Hoover himself explained that this was how he believed he had won the political argument with Franklin Roosevelt by, as Hoover pungently said, I outlived the bastards, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, by the time Hoover um, died, it was a little bit before Barry Goldwater so resoundingly lost the 1964 election, but Hoover did live to see the Republican nominee espousing his views on the economy and directly attributing them to Herbert Hoover. Barry Goldwater invoked Hoover as one of the people who'd influenced him, and so, so did Richard Nixon. So Hoover became very influential in sort of defining the Republican Party as being, uh, you know, a, a party that stood against the New Deal and any expansion of the New Deal. And that, that, he be, that became the mainstream view, and of course continues to be the mainstream view, of the Republican Party. Hoover's own writings contributed to that. Hoover's own willingness to sort of go around to college Republicans and speak to them and, you know, sort of inspire them, you know, contributed to that. He became a very vital figure in sort of reshaping the Republican Party over the nearly, uh, well, I guess the, the more than three decades that he survived after the end of his presidency. Uh, so first of all, Donald Trump is very like unlikely just on, you know, uh, actuarial tables to survive as long after being president as Herbert Hoover did, right? He's he's much older, um, relatively right. speaking. So it's just the odds are that, uh, that, uh, that that won't happen in, in quite the same way. He also doesn't have the talent for organizing and management that Herbert Hoover did, right? It's very... I mean, we've seen that in his presidency, right? And in fact, we saw that before he became president, right? That Hoover was a massively successful businessman. You couldn't say that of Donald Trump, right? So it's hard to imagine him sort of being at the center of a, of a successful networking effort of an institution building effort. On the other hand, it's impossible to imagine him not continuing to try to develop what we might as well call the Trump brand and the politics that are associated with it. And it, it, you know, it remains to be seen whether that's something that Republicans want. There's no, there's no overwhelming evidence that it works for anybody except Donald Trump himself, uh, that his sort of peculiar mix of salesmanship and ideology and so forth. And indeed, you know, if it had been more effective, perhaps uh, you know, we wouldn't be seeing the Democrats about to take over the Senate right now. Um, that is to say, you know, it might have swayed the special elections in the favor of the incumbent Republicans, um, but it, it didn't. So if he continues to sort of be a kind of an electoral drag on the fortunes of Republican candidates, then I think he will obviously continue to be uh, outspoken. It's Again, it's impossible to imagine him not doing that. But his, uh, you know, sort of influence over the center of the party will, will probably fade. However, Trumpism which is to say a willingness to be open about things that uh, Republicans have not been willing to be open about, including their feelings about immigration and black uh, Americans voting, you know, that, that, that may, that may, that may continue. I mean, the difference also is that, you know, Donald Trump has 
social media. He has Twitter. He has Facebook. So that's something that, you know, Hoover didn't have the advantage of, right? Well, I mean, Donald Trump doesn't have Twitter and Facebook right now, well, right? Not right not, now, not, he doesn't. Not right, at the moment. Might, yeah. Right, right. And I but, don't know if he... Uh, he might have it again. Yeah, he may, I'm sure, sooner or later. But, um, yeah, well, obviously, the, the, the um, you know, the media situation it's in some respects very different and in some respects, you know, not all that different. I mean, yes, there's no sort of from my fingertips to the world situation in 1933. But on the other hand, the American newspaper publishers in the 1930s and afterwards were broadly pretty anti-Roosevelt. Uh, you know, if you think about William Randolph Hearst, uh, you know, there was a fleeting moment in the beginning of the New Deal where Hearst was pro-Roosevelt, but that's because he was in favor of some fantasy Roosevelt that he had invented in his own mind, not the real Roosevelt, who actually uh, governed in a way that Hearst didn't like at all, including being in favor of unions and international alliances against Nazism and things like that. You know, um, so Hearst was very anti-Roosevelt for the bulk of Roosevelt's presidency. The papers uh, like the New York Daily News or the Chicago Tribune or the Gannett chains uh, or Roy Howard's papers, these are, you know, the big, big newspaper chains of the uh, 1930s, generally speaking, weren't all that friendly to Franklin Roosevelt, especially as he... Um, you know, began to promote a more vigorously anti-Nazi foreign policy. So, you know, that the idea that the media climate, you know, would be more unfriendly to uh, liberals now than then doesn't seem to me to be really be borne out if you look closely at the at the historical record. Mm -hmm. So, so what are the consequences of having a transition that is not a smooth one? Well, the immediate consequence in this case in nineteen in in, in sorry rather in twenty 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 one as uh, as was the immediate consequence in nineteen thirty two nineteen thirty three is that the crisis remains unmet, right? If you uh, believe as I do and as it appears a majority of the electorate do that we would rather have a more aggressive federal response to the coronavirus, if we would rather have, you know, a more efficient vaccine rollout, um, the Biden administration is vastly more likely to provide that. And that's why I think, again, an awful lot of folks voted for it. Right? We're not going to get that until Joe Biden takes office. If the transition were smoother, it could begin to take place. Biden and his people could be ready on day one. They will not because the Trump folks have dug in their heels. So we are being denied the, uh, you know, the results that we voted for because the Trump administration is digging in its heels against the transition. I mean, to put a fine, to put, to put, to put this bluntly, people are going to die who don't have to die because the transition is not going smoothly. And that was true in 1932-33, in as much as you believe, and I do, and certainly a majority of the electorate did in 1932, that the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal would better address the crisis of the Depression than the Hoover administration. The Hoover administration's unwillingness to permit that to happen until beginning on March 4th, when Roosevelt took office, meant that a lot more people lost their jobs and went hungry and probably died right. as a result of that. So the consequences immediately are really quite considerable. And we can see that, in fact, they're quite immoral. Um, symbolically, you know, the consequences are probably quite grave as well. Both uh, Hoover and Trump are resisting democracy. In both cases, the voters voted for something 
that the incumbents have decided they shouldn't have. And instead of saying, okay, I made my best case, I lost, I'm going to give the people what they want, both Hoover and Trump have said they may not have what they wanted. And it's, you know, that's a very anti-democratic impulse. What would your advice be for President-elect Joe Biden on the way forward? Are there lessons that he can learn from how FDR dealt with uh, the Hoover transition? Or are there other lessons in history that can help minimize some of the damage? Well, I think that the uh, important lesson that we learn from Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal is that it was not only a successful economic program. I mean, recovery began as soon as Roosevelt began to implement New Deal legislation in 1932, and it continued very rapidly with, you know, in the vicinity of 9 and 10% economic growth over the majority of his first two terms in office, with the exception of a recession in 1937. So the New Deal is a successful economic program. Of course, more people, you know, had money in their pockets, more people had jobs and the dignity of labor. Um, and that was really Roosevelt's aim, though, was to give people the understanding that democracy still worked, right? It wasn't recovery for its own sake. It was recovery so that people would have reason to believe that a democratically elected government could work. And that's because in 1932 and 1933 particularly, in the United States and around the world, there was a lot of skepticism about whether democracy could still work. You know, this is, of course, in 1933 is when Hitler became chancellor in Germany because people were giving up on democracy in Germany in the face of the Depression. And there were similarly anti-democratic movements and pro-Nazi movements in the United States and elsewhere throughout the world. And Roosevelt viewed the New Deal as a program to demonstrate in the face of rising Nazism throughout the world that democracy could still work. That's the most important lesson, I think, that anyone, but in this case, since you've asked President-elect Biden, could take, that the challenge is to show that the government is not irredeemably corrupt and inept, but it, that can still work for people, and that therefore America's constitutional democracy can still succeed and improve. And I think we, we kind of saw that um, on the very same day that the Capitol was was stormed. I mean, it was very disturbing that, that it happened at the behest of a sitting president. But, you know, it appears that our democratic institutions have survived. Congress completed its work and fulfilled its duty in certifying the election. So how are you feeling about the resilience of our of our democratic institutions over the next few months and years? Well, certainly I would have felt a lot worse if Congress had had, had delayed um, carrying out its legal duty uh, to meet on January 6th and to count the electoral votes. Uh, that does seem like a, a minimum threshold. <laughs> I'd like to see something a mm -hmm. bit more inspiring occur. Right, uh, you right. know, I'd like, I, I, I'd like to see um, not only a robust and effective response to the pandemic, but also a humane response to the uh, economic suffering of Americans. Because I think, again, you know, given that we've had in this country increasing economic and wealth inequality going back decades now, people have begun to lose faith in the ability of the democracy to work for the uh, average citizen. And it would be great to see uh, that reversed even modestly. If there were two or three things that you would want to see change 
in the government to make it more resilient and to make it more accountable, what what would they be, whether it's presidential powers or congressional oversight? Well, I mean, there, yeah. First of all, the president's sort of personal authority over nuclear weapons is clearly an outdated phenomenon and needs to be reexamined, right? I mean, that's, we, God, God willing, we haven't uh, had to worry about that, but it's been looming over a lot, right? And uh, similarly, you know, a lot of his sort of unilateral ability to to wield, uh, you know, military power should probably be addressed. There, you know, we have actually reasonably good uh, laws for preventing financial shenanigans. It's just that they're not enforced because the regulatory agencies like the SEC are not adequately supported. You know, I mean, one thing that we could just do is adequately fund the SEC, the FCC, the FEC, the EPA, and, uh, you know, to take seriously our labor laws, that that would make a huge difference. You know, just allowing them to enforce the rules and like regulation we already have would be, uh, you know, pretty good. Uh, The um, president's sort of unique authority to, to sort of wield the tariff seems to be something we could do without. And uh, institutionally, you know, obviously some, some big obstacles to improved policy, you know, c- could be removed. You know, and I think, you know, the obvious ones, for example, the Senate filibuster and, um, you know, the, the, the just dealing somehow with the ways in which the uh, staffing of the federal courts and the Supreme Court uh, have been gamed over the past couple of decades is something that needs to be done as well. Well, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Eric Roshway is a distinguished professor of history at UC Davis, and he's author most recently of Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash Over the New Deal. Find out more about Eric Roshway's research on our website, ucdavis.edu slash the-backdrop-podcast. You can listen and subscribe to The Backdrop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Satirius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas.